This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Uh, the big story, still news coming out of Strathroy. Uh, Aaron Driver uh, had planned, obviously, to commit uh, to commit an act of terrorism uh, a few days after his confrontation with uh, police. Of course, uh, we all heard about the video, and that tipped police off through the FBI into the RCMP, and uh, and and obviously a capture prior to uh, any sort of crime, any sort of attack. Uh, and thank goodness for that. Coming up uh, after the news at 12.30, we're going to talk to Alan Woods of the Toronto Star. He was uh, a reporter who interviewed uh, Aaron, I guess, about 18 months ago and has a very in- interesting perspective on him. We'll talk to him coming up after the news at 12.30. In the meantime, let's bring in John Thompson, security consultant, strategic intelligence group, and uh, talk to him regarding this and specifically about the bomb and the explosive device uh, that could have been used. Good afternoon, John. How are you today? Not too bad yourself. Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We certainly appreciate it. I know you've been a busy guy uh, doing media and such uh, over the last 24, 48 hours and such. Uh, so your thoughts on this attack, how serious was this? Uh, how close were we to having a, an extremely s- serious, uh, tragic situation on our hands? Well, remember that a lot of the, the facts aren't really available yet. And now that uh, there won't be a trial, they, they probably won't uh, become available. But from what we can see, that uh, the police were surprised, uh, and then they had to rush, you know, to to, to pin him down and to, uh, uh, you know, I, try and isolate him. By which time, that uh, um, the suspect had already apparently made uh, two explosive devices and was trying to leave the, the property when the police arrived. What do we so, know about the actual explosive devices? And, and I guess the reason that I'm asking that, John, is obviously uh, he blew uh, one up inside the ca- inside the, the taxi cab. Uh, I understand the driver was fleeing just as this was all going down uh, and, and avoided injury as a result. But normally what we've seen in these sorts of attacks, uh, the damage seems to be quite greater than, than what this was. Now, do we know if he was killed by the bomb or police fire? And, and, and what can you tell us about the device itself? Uh, I suspect it was probably police fire. Again, we don't know. But uh, typically um, in uh, terrorism inside the Western world, it's very hard. Um, it's been very hard since 9-11 to get a hold of uh, commercial or military-grade plastic explosives. And so both in, in Europe and in, in North America, what we normally see are terrorists resorting to uh, uh, various sources. And, you know, there have been books around for about 40 years, and there's websites and so on that uh, give all sorts of formulas for homemade explosives. And most of them are extremely dangerous. They're not that efficient. Um, but uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda have produced a, a couple that uh, are uh, extremely powerful for their weight that you can make with uh, you know, sort of cleaning uh, materials and easily available substances. However, if there's somebody out there who you know, wants to rush to the Internet and start experimenting, one, it's illegal, and two, uh, these things are extremely unstable and very, very dangerous. Uh, in order for him to carry off what he did and make what he did, and again, we don't know much about it at this point, uh, how much work, how much research, how hard is it to do this? Um, I've uh, had uh, a professional interest in these matters for some years. In fact, uh, it actually got accelerated when uh, I was uh, the target of a mail bomb about 20 years ago. Um, so it's not hard to uh, define the formula. 
the thing is that the most common uh, source for uh, uh, sort of how-to manuals was uh, the, the old anarchist cookbook that came out in mm. 1970. Uh, it has to be said, though, that about uh, one out of every four people that followed their directions ended up killing or maiming themselves when, right. they, when they tried to make their own bomb. Um, Internet and some other substances that uh, um, one is the one that uh, is called Hellbrew that uh, the jihad movement uses. Uh, it's extremely useful for them, but again, it, it evaporates really fast. You can make it very quickly, but uh, if you take too long to deliver it to your target, it'll be inert. Hmm. The other point is that it can, uh, what they call high order, go off on its own when you're transporting it. But these are the sort of explosives that uh, homegrowns have to resort to. You can, they can make them out of uh, very available household chemicals, um, and usually a lot of them get killed uh, by their own explosives when they're preparing them. John, uh, just on a side note, why were you a target? Oh, I'd uh, written an expose on a particular group, and they didn't like it. Hmm. All right, we'll leave it at that. How much damage could this have done? How much? Um, and the reason that I'm asking that, John, is that you know we saw shots of inside the cab. Obviously, there had been a lot of damage to the inside of the cab, but it it really didn't seem to be that large. The cabbie obviously got out with, uh, you know, not too uh, severely injured, from what I understand. Well, what I why not bigger? Why making. not? Sorry. What I suspect he was making was the uh, equivalent of sort of uh, pipe bombs. Uh, and again, a lot of uh, suicide attackers have made a number of pipe bombs and strapped themselves to them and then tried to detonate them when they, they reached their target. Mm -hmm. But by itself, uh, your average homemade pipe bomb is basically the equivalent of a hand grenade. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of cover, a little bit of distance, and you're a lot safer than you would be if you were sitting on top of it. But that being said, in a crowded area and, you know, in the right circumstance, it could have severely, it obviously could have created serious damage. Well, the the attack the other day in Pakistan that killed most of the lawyers in Quetta, uh, it seemed there was a suicide attacker who walked into the middle of the demonstration and he may have had seven or eight, the equivalent of seven or eight pipe bombs strapped him. Mm -hmm. And uh, the photographs, he's based, there's a circle. Yeah. Uh, and just to the edge of it are all these broken, named bodies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what will, obviously we're not hearing very much information at this point. When will we hear more? And as you mentioned, uh, because uh, the suspect or the, the bomber is, is, is deceased now, uh, there won't be a trial. So what will we find out about this over time? Not too much. Um, there will be a, a coroner's report. There will be some other uh, uh, documentation that has to be produced that will be available for researchers. But, uh, again, uh, because it's not a trial, there's no public venue. So you, you'd actually have to uh, uh, write for access to the details of uh, uh, the incident, and it may come out redacted. Or if there's a trial, everything is available uh, at the end of the public. So, again, as I said, I, there's a number of things I can't say definitely about this particular incident and probably never will be able to, but can draw inferences from what we've seen from thousands of other incidents over the years. 
Uh, a lot of people are questioning, and I wrote a blog about this this morning. Uh, you know, wh- why even publish a video? Why go to that extent? Because it was obviously that that, that led the police through the FBI and RCMP right to his door. Why do that? Was this was this guy more of a disenfranchised Canadian uh, who who lost his way and needed psychological help more than he needed? you know, uh, ISIS or anything like that? Or, or uh, is this somebody who who you would actually, uh, I, I guess what I'm asking you to do is differentiate between a domestic and an international terrorist. I mean, this is, he's a sympathizer, but he also seemed to be a little bit men- mentally unstable as well. Um, they're all... Um, mentally unstable. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, they're all ideologues, and, and it's one of those chicken and egg arguments. What comes first? Uh, right. The, the precondition to to want to uh, to kill to want to do something spectacular, uh, or the ideology. You know, the ideology might condition someone to kill, or there's someone who wants to kill who searches out the ideology to uh, permit themselves to commit an action. And you, you have to sort of look at the balance of this. Uh, the other point, of course, is that uh, e- even if he hadn't found the jihad, he might have found another mm. ideology that allowed him to kill. But the jihad is pretty lethal. It's, uh, it's a lot more deadly than some other forms of terrorism we've seen in the past. But also for 20 years now, we've seen uh, suicide attackers. It began with the, the Chechens in the 1990s, but it became a habit uh, uh, throughout the entire movement, especially with al-Qaeda and uh, uh, ISIS, to deliver a testament. Um, and this is basically the modern form uh, where a lot of terrorists used to, you know, issue a communique when they launched an attack. Right. Instead, this is a video testament that uh, declares why they're doing things. So you, so with him being on video prior to this, do you think he thought that they just wouldn't find it until after the fact, or do you think he was he was looking for his moment in the sun? Um, six of one, half a dozen of another. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we were actually speaking to, you know, maybe some aspect of his subconscious reasoning, and there's no way we can explore that now. Yeah. Uh, are you worried, concerned, uh, this will lead to others? Uh, you know, I mean, the fact that he did get caught, the fact that, you know, boy, you certainly have to commend authorities, whether they were just lucky this time or not. Uh, uh, copycat, contagion? Well, uh, just to the, the point, uh, you can't say there's luck. I mean, our, our police services have made their own luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's all the relationships uh, that already exist. So this uh, video would have been posted on the Internet um, because it was, say, posted by a Canadian. There would have been no Canadian agency looking for it, but there would have been the agencies from some allied countries looking for it. Somebody went, oh, immediately contacted the FBI because they couldn't contact a Canadian agency the FBI then related to the RCMP, and this is all because of pre-existing, almost routine relationships, a, a standard reporting network that more right. or less exists, because we would be doing the same thing if someone did the same thing in the United States hmm. or in Australia or in Britain. Uh, a lot of people in the area of Strathroy where uh, this person was reside, residing uh, said that they wanted to know, they should have known about all of this. Uh, the mosque in the area which a driver attended said that they tried to de-radicalize him. Should, should people know about this? Should people have known in the neighborhood? Would that have helped or hurt it? 
Well, remember, uh, ultimately, terrorism always represents a threat to our, our civil freedoms. And one of those, of course, is the presumption of innocence. I mean, if you are a known sex offender, you've been convicted of sex offenses, and people in the neighborhood have a right to know if you moved into their neighborhood. Right. But this is someone who's not actually been convicted of any violent terrorism-related offenses yet. And so, therefore, his privacy under our laws had to be respected. Uh, and uh, there were civil rights organizations that were upset the fact that he was even had to wear a GPS uh, bracelet or anklet, uh, even though he hadn't been, uh, as you said, uh, convicted of anything. So how do you balance this, John? Well, that's the point. We balance these things. We, we have to compromise. We have to uh, uh, try and find a happy medium where we can protect ourselves at the same time, respect somebody's rights. And this sort of... Uh, um, uh, House arrest, peace bond, uh, anklet bearing uh, material is, is sort of part of the compromise. Uh, it's also, though, at the same time, if you look at it the other way, it's not so much the police harassing somebody who just wants to do their own thing. It's our security agencies trying to tell someone, you are going down a very dangerous path. We're on to you. Please stop. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't listen. Are there many out there that feel the same way as as Aaron Driver, but never go over this edge? I mean, there was, uh, you know, a, a reporter we're about to have on now, Alan Woods, didn't think that he would uh, go this far. I mean, and I guess that's why he was off the radar uh, temporarily w- with Canadian authorities, is that they thought he was a propaganda guy, but but that was pretty much it. Um, there are hundreds that um, are being watched, especially cybernetically. Uh, and you just don't know the length of their fuses. Yeah. Some of them are on a short fuse, and some of them are duds. And you don't know until they start to get into a pattern of activities. So there, there is monitoring that goes on of people who are visiting the sites and making the, the, the talk and so on and so forth. After a while, they get handed over, handed off. You know, in the United States, the FBI here to seek this which will then do more of a conventional investigation and say, oh, yeah, this guy is dangerous or this guy is not dangerous. Then if there's a point where they they see that criminal activity is much more likely, it gets handed off to the inset team. And then the inset team, again, like everybody else, their goal is not to uh, catch terrorists, it's to prevent terrorist actions from occurring. Hmm. But they, they will watch and try and make sure that terrorist attack doesn't occur. And in this case, it's another win. Nobody else was killed. Yeah. Uh, does this change life here now, John? Does this change protocol, security? What do we learn from this? Well, uh, what we've learned is that our existing mechanisms worked uh, just in this particular time. But um, the people on the inset teams and people in CSIS have said as much to uh, to the press and uh, the parliamentary committees that they're overworked, that they uh, mm. they just have too many targets on the go and, and not enough resources. So it is only a matter of time before somebody will leap through. But it didn't happen this week. So what's the answer then, John? Is it uh, then allowing, uh, I guess, a lowering of of civil rights and saying, well, you know, everybody should know if the errand drivers of the world are in their neighborhood. Well, I guess that's the point where you and I and, and your entire audience comes in, that this is something we have to debate, yeah. and we have to debate it rationally. 
uh, and we have to continue to think about what mechanisms we want to allow, uh, how much violence we're prepared to accept. Uh, and it's better that we're doing this in the light of an incident where no one else was killed, rather than, say, if, if 20 or 30 people got killed in a, uh, a train mm. station in London. Does this change like the dis- does it change the discussion because we're coming at it from this angle, John? Well, that discussion's going to change. The, um, the jihad movement is um, unlike any other terrorist group I've seen before. They are much, much faster at recruiting and conditioning people. It's not like uh, 40 years ago where it could take months and months to condition someone to attack. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a steady stream of individuals. And How do we explain I, their ability to do that? I don't have much time left, but how do we explain their ability to, to, to drag these people in? A large part of it is the Internet, and a large part of it is is sort of the decline in modern thinking. No one teaches critical thinking anymore. Every value is respected. And I think the point is if you've got someone starting to talk the jihad talk, what they really need is their family, their friends, and neighbors to go, are you stupid or something, and start to (laughs) criticize their thinking rather than this modern, we're going to accept you because it's all tolerable. There are ideologies that are too dangerous to tolerate, and we should behave that way. Well said. John Thompson has been with us, Security Consultant, Strategic Intelligence Group. John, we thank you for your time and expertise, as always. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Terrorist or lost soul looking for a vehicle to facilitate his hate uh, as we continue to talk about uh, Aaron Driver, uh, the man of all the attention in Strathroy uh, over the last couple of days and uh, who, of course, was, uh, well, we don't know exactly how he died, whether he died from the shots of of, uh, police or whether he, in fact, uh, died from his own uh, makeshift bomb. Uh, we will talk about that moments from now with Alan Woods, a Toronto Star reporter who uh, actually has spoken to this man and had interviewed him last year. Also, the poll question of the day is there. What do you think of modifications to Confederation Park? Feel free to offer your opinion there. So many ways to talk to us. Facebook, Twitter. You can send me a note 24-7 at scottthompson at 900chml.com. And, of course, the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star, 99, uh, star 9900 on your cell. Uh, obviously, yes, uh, just uh, in the last segment and, of course, yesterday talking about the big story coming out of Strathroy and Aaron Driver, who was on his way to uh, carry out some sort of terrorist act and was apprehended uh, ahead of time, uh, tips through the FBI, eventually to the RCMP. And uh, by the time police arrived, he was literally getting into a cab. Uh, with backpack on board, complete with bomb. Uh, Alan Woods, a Toronto Star reporter, 18 months ago, ta- uh, talked to Alan Woods, or sorry, talked to uh, Aaron Driver and interviewed him in regard to attacks that had happened previously. And, of course, uh, Alan is with us now. Good afternoon, Alan. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate this. Scott, happy to be here. Uh, wh- why did you decide to interview Aaron Driver back in 2015? Well, I'm, I'm based in Montreal for the Toronto Star, and uh, in January of 2015, so a month before I talked to him, uh, there'd been a bunch of young uh, Muslims from Montreal, uh, you know, teenagers essentially, who up and, and left, they just disappeared and uh, turned up in, in Syria and in Iraq. And, you know, I was just getting really frustrated as a reporter, trying to figure out their intentions and, and their motivations through Facebook posts and social media sites that gave incomplete information. And I thought, I'd like to get ahead of the story, and, and, and I'd like to understand what goes through the mind of someone who's on this track. 
Um, so I, I set out to uh, to find a Canadian uh, ISIS supporter who would talk to me. Why Aaron Driver? Well, I mean, it's, it's more logistics than anything. He was he was the guy that I could um, I could get in touch with. I could find out information about. He had an, an alias that he used, an online alias, um, Harun Daniel, which was a play on his, uh, his name, Aaron Daniel Driver. Hmm. Um, and so uh, it was unique enough that I could figure out, uh, I could see other, uh, other postings that he's made on other sites. And, uh, you know, there was, there was enough information that I could sort of figure out a bit about this guy. Talk about the and logistics getting this interview. And what you yeah, had so, to I go mean, through. Once I had, uh, you know, basic uh, background sketch of who he was, um, I sent uh, a message to him on a public site saying, "Hey, check. Uh, don't you ever check your messages on Skype?" I, I sent sort of a long proposal, right, explaining what I was setting out to do. Hmm. And uh, he said, no, "Follow me on on Twitter, and we can have a conversation." And so I did, and uh, I spelled out exactly what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to talk about him. I wanted to understand what made him tick. And uh, he took some. It took a, a couple of days to think about it. I think he, talked, he thought about it over the weekend. He got back to me, and he said, uh, "Sure, uh, okay, but uh, I can't be named, and you can't share anything that comes from the interview with the, the police." Which, you know, as a journalist, I just I wouldn't do. I, he's, a, he's a source for a story. He hasn't committed mm-hmm. any crime at that time. Um. And he agreed, and he said, "I'll get back to you with uh, how we're going to do this." And so he was a—he's uh, a bit of a, was a computer uh, guy, yeah, a bit of video gamer, and uh, and had on Twitter had offered uh, sort of computer security advice to other uh, ISIS supporters. Hmm. And so he came back to me and he said, uh, "Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do it via this uh, encrypted internet uh, telephone service." And I had no idea how that worked, so he talked me through it, and uh, we talked. It was midweek um, uh, in February, sort of uh, between like seven and nine o'clock at night, and it was fascinating. And you had no idea where he was. I knew he was in Winnipeg. Right. And he knew I knew he was in Winnipeg. Um, one of the conditions was, you know, that I wouldn't name the city he was in or the city that he was raised in. So I said he was in Manitoba and that he was raised in Ontario. So uh, obviously you talked to him for a couple of hours. What was his reasoning for doing this? Over and above the event that just happened, what did you gain for your story as far as insight on why he was doing this? But, I mean, I learned about uh, a little bit about his life. He came from sort of a, a broken home. His mother died early. Mm-hmm. Um, his... Uh, he bounced around. He was lived with his brother, with his sister, with his father. He lived on his own. Uh, I learned about how he came to Islam. Right? He converted. It wasn't a quick conversion. He he converted uh, years before. Uh, so and it wasn't like uh, you know someone who uh, saw ISIS propaganda and and uh, thought this is a thing for me. Right. You know he'd been involved in in his in his communities in the Islamic. Uh, cultural uh, centers in the mosque activities uh, wherever he lived and you know I wanted to find out uh, basically what would what would make someone who is raised in Canada who has the the comforts and the security that we have here uh, you know 
feel an obligation to, you know, try and move to Syria where, you know, it's been decimated by civil war, right? Yeah. And bombing strikes and, and, you know, terrorism and all that. What was his reasoning for, uh, or did he use his upbringing as a reason for how he was uh, reacting the way he was or why he was doing what he was? No, no. I mean, he used his upbringing to explain that, you know, why he was drawn to Islam. Why and, was he drawn uh, to Islam? He was, uh, basically, he was living on his own at uh, 16, 17 years old. Mm-hmm. He was partying like any 16 or 17-year-old might do. And he just got sick of it. Yeah. And he started searching for religion, so some sort of uh, guidance for his life. And he, uh, he turned to Islam because he said it gave him the, you know, sort of the framework and the guidance and the, you know, the the guidelines that uh, that he didn't have in his normal life, right, in his family life. So how did he get from a person who picks up the religion, uh, becomes a peace-loving Muslim, and then turns into a radical? Any sort of... Any sort of... I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 you know, after our conversation, I, I end up, you know, to talk to his father, and, uh, and he said, you know, that he had spent... This uh, is Aaron, had spent a lot of time, uh, you know, locked in his room, up through the night, on his computer, listening to, uh, you know, YouTube videos and, and things like that. Uh, you know, it's very secretive. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I can't, I can't tell you at what point he became a, a non-peace-loving Muslim. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he developed into this, this, Sort of sympathizer, right? It's sort of that's. Do you think? Do you think? Do you think he is? Do you think this is the typical profile of a domestic terrorist? Do you think this is the typical uh, dysfunctional, uh, disenfranchised youth that just you know goes down the wrong path? I mean, it it looks like a typical profile. Yeah, listen. I mean, in in, I think there. I think that any anyone who studies this, uh, who has experienced it, will tell you there is no one profile. But he is you know, sort of a textbook case of someone who was had trouble earlier in his life and uh and, and sought out um sort of radical Islam. Well he saw I, I don't think there is any one uh one profile, right? You can't say yeah. everyone comes at it from criminality or uh, you know, or everyone comes at it from the religious angle. It's, right. Uh, it's a mixed bag. Right. What were your thoughts when you first saw this story, Alan? What were your thoughts when you realized this was the guy that you had interviewed? It's, I, you know, I'm actually out of the office this week, and so I was sort of following it, uh, you know, on my phone, and I saw a picture that was posted uh, of the, you know, the person suspected of uh, being at the source of the terror threat, and he was wearing a black balaclava, and, and I, yeah, I thought... Those eyes are familiar. The, the eyes mm-hmm. that I that I saw, and I wondered immediately if it was him, um, or just someone who happened to look like him. And you know, I went away, and I came back at the end of the day, and someone contacted me and or, and said, "Hey, this is uh, this is Aaron Driver. This is the guy you talked to." And I was so 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 stunned. I mean, I was surprised. Hmm. It's uh, it's. It, but it's it's the surprise of I mean it has no it has no practical impact on my life yeah uh, but uh, it's the surprise that you would have with if anyone you'd met in any circumstance just suddenly dies in a very sort of gruesome way. 
Were you surprised because when you interviewed him, and as you say in your piece, that you know you really didn't think he had it in him? Yeah, yeah. I uh, one of the things that stands out for me uh, from our interview is that uh, I asked him about the the, the the horrific violence, the graphic violence that is the sort of the staple of Islamic State propaganda, and whether that was a good thing, whether he agreed with that, and. Yeah, he was. It was the one point where he said, "You know, I, I'm not sure that I'm completely comfortable with it because, uh, you know, although, you know, what the Islamic State is doing, he saw it as justified retaliation for you know Western aggression against Muslims. Uh, he said he worried that sort of the the really violent, like the executions, the beheadings, the crucifixions. He worried that it would attract the wrong kind of people to the movement." Uh, you know, it would attract the the uh, the psychopaths, um, the murderers, that kind of that kind of profile. So, as you remember him as someone who may not have uh, uh, the wherewithal or, or just the plain guts to do something like this, did you have any idea he was heading in that direction? That more radicalization would end up with this result. No, but I, I knew, I mean, I followed, obviously followed his case uh, you know, somewhat closely, but I, I knew that uh, the authorities were taking him more seriously. And in fact, I, mean, they, I think they mentioned yesterday, the RCMP, that uh, you know, when they read, read the article that I wrote at the time, uh, it sort of gave them the, uh, an indication that he was more than just this online jihadi who was content to spout off on, on Twitter, that he actually... You know, would ideally move to uh, you know the Islamic State, and that um, and that he was condoning the, the terrorist attacks that have occurred in in Ottawa and uh, in Quebec uh, just a few months prior. His father later told me that uh, the surveillance that he was already under had been bumped up to twenty four seven surveillance. Right, and before that, they just intelligence. Uh, Agents had just done some interviews uh, with him and family members, but they they certainly started taking it more seriously in the weeks and months ahead. And then eventually he was arrested uh, and uh, subject to a peace bond. So his movements were restricted and who he could contact was restricted. Uh, even in the original article, you mentioned that he knew that people were on to him or following him. Do you think he liked that attention? I don't like these, I don't think like is the right word. Um, he said that uh, you know he didn't he didn't like the fact that his family now knew about his Twitter feed and, and some of his, his more uh, uh, radical views. He was uncomfortable with that. Uh, but he said that knowing that CSIS was aware of his activities and his thoughts, it, it didn't stop him. In, in fact, it had the opposite effect. He felt liberated and and sort of free to speak his mind. Do you get the feeling he no he... longer had a concern for himself? I don't. It's, it's not quite a death wish, right? right. But he was, he wasn't concerned about. Oh God, maybe I'm going to end up in jail. Maybe I should stop. Yeah. For him, it was confirmation. For him, it was confirmation, but it was also, yeah, it was it was liberation. Uh, do you think this? He thought this was his calling. This is what he was meant to do. You mean this is what happened this week? Yeah. I don't know. The change that uh, that, that uh, I um, 
get heard in his tone from February 2015 to this week. Uh, you know, it was like it was like night and day. It was like a different person. And yeah, everyone has many questions about what happened and and how it got to this point. I can't help but wonder if uh, you know the the restrictions that he was subject to um, may have you know had the opposite effect, may have uh, intensified his convictions. Hmm. Uh, and and I don't know. I'm not. I'm not saying that the, the, that police shouldn't have done anything, right? It, that's yeah. They they know their job, but uh, you know how did how did it get to this? How does someone how does someone get to the point where they want to blow up innocent people? Again, and and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to figure out, Alan. Is this uh, is this someone who started? And you talked about his background and the broken childhood. Is this one who need? Is this someone who needed psychological counseling, or was looking? You know, or was a religious became a religious person and then took it to the extreme? I mean, it seems from an early age this kid's been calling out. Yeah. Yeah, I think he needed. Uh, he was he was asking for help. He was screaming well, listen, for help. His, his his father said he tried to get him counseling. He yeah. tried to get him the help, but their relationship was so fractured that yeah. he couldn't get through to his son. And I know that uh, when I spoke to his brother as well, he said he he was he was the brother was terrified of of Aaron Driver shutting down, right? Of just no longer talking to his family or the people closest to him in his life. Uh, and so he wanted to keep that dialogue going in, in the hopes that if they could have that one more conversation, maybe he could get through to him. Hmm. And so it wasn't for lack of trying that this happened. How close was he to other members of the family? Uh, what was his relationship like with his brother? Older, no, is his brother older or younger, do you know? He's the youngest of, the, of, of three kids. Right. And, uh, you know, I think you know, his brother and he kept in contact at the point when I talked to him uh, Aaron was living in Winnipeg and his um, his brother and sister were living in Ontario and his father was living in Alberta and uh, and so they tried to keep in contact you know through text you know like any family right? through text messages through phone calls through visits uh, you know at holidays you know but uh, you know there was distance involved right there was mm-hmm. uh, that that Physical barrier, geographic barrier. But he was living with his sister in Strathroy, was he not? Well, uh, this is after he was arrested. Yeah. After I talked to him, uh, he moved at one point to uh, to Strathroy and is living with his sister. And her, you know, his sister has kids, so you got to one, you got to worry about them too, right? What? Uh, and again, you know, we're we're trying to figure this out from the outside, but um, from what you know about him. Uh, what would it be like living in a house with him? Uh, would you not know that he was up to something, that there was this kind of stuff going on? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, the way his father explained it, he was very secretive. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I haven't had recent contact with him, so I don't know if he was secretive with other people. Um, how could you not know someone was building you know, allegedly building or obtaining the materials for a bomb. I don't know. Yeah. People do all sorts of things uh, right under the, the noses of their, their yeah. family members. Right? No, very true. Uh, but no history of mental illness. He never uh, accepted any counseling of any sort. Ah, listen, 
I don't know his full medical history, uh, you know, but I don't, I know that, uh, you know, when counseling was offered to him by his father at one point, he didn't accept it. But, I mean, I think it's safe to say that he suffered emotional traumas in his life. Yeah. So the the research that you did, even for this initial story back in 2015, and, and what you found out about people like Aaron and, and others like him, uh, are you surprised this happened? Are you surprised it went this far? How concerned are you about the others out there? I don't know. I mean, I always assumed that uh, if you cut some... I guess I presume that if you cut someone off from the source of the propaganda, the, the you know the the information that's radicalizing them, that this would the the sentiment would go away, right? Mm-hmm. It would it would it would diminish. Um, I guess I'm not so sure. Or I'm perhaps, pretty, but, or, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the, the authorities, the RCMP and CSIS, are not so sure as as well today. Perhaps by then, though, Alan, it was just too late. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, what do you think we're going to learn from this? How will this change things, life in Canada, do you think? I, 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 well, listen, um, without knowing all the details of the investigation, uh, you have to question where, where was this, what happened that a person who is under, uh, you know, a peace bond, who's supposed to be watched as a terrorist threat, a threat to society, uh, was able to you know, develop such a plan? And why was it that the FBI and not uh, Canadian authorities hmm. uh, were the ones who, who blew the whistle? Um, you know, apparently he was not under, uh, you know, police watch, like, uh, you know, in a sort of a surveillance sense. You know, should he have been? You know, do, they have, do, do the authorities need to reassess how they're treating these, these peace bond cases? Because there's, there's a fair number of them across the country. Uh, last question: uh, Are you worried we will not hear the entire story now because he's dead and there will be no trial? Oh, you'll never hear. Uh, yeah, you'll never hear the entire story. I don't think. I mean, you know, when someone dies, their story dies with them, right? Their motivations die with them. And 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 this was, uh, in a sense, the original goal of my of my work was to talk to someone to try and understand where they're coming from before they die, before something like this happens. And uh, do you think we, we understand? We you, always lose something, right? Do you think we understand more, Alan? I'd like. To, I, I think I do. I hope other people do. That that it's not so nuanced, right? It's not someone goes on Twitter, uh, you know, finds a couple of uh, jihadi friends, and then all of a sudden they become radical. That there is a process, and uh, and there are factors that. You know, there's lots of gray between the black and white. Hmm. Alan Woods has been with us, uh, Montreal Bureau, Toronto Star. Alan, fascinating stuff. Thanks very much for sharing it with us. Much appreciated. And, of course, uh, uh, the article in the Toronto Star right now, and, of course, in the Hamilton Spectator as well. Reporter who interviewed Aaron Davis, or Driver, Aaron Driver, shocked by news of his death. Thanks very much, Alan. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Donald Trump in the headlines again this week. He uh, seems to be retracting a statement 
that said that uh, Obama and Hillary as well, I think, uh, absolutely founded ISIS. Uh, he'd been saying this over the course of the day. He was eventually interviewed, and uh, uh, one reporter asked him, you are referring to the fact that they pulled out of the Middle East, created a vacuum, and then ISIS uh, was allowed to flourish. Trump said, no, 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 no. Uh, they founded uh, this. And, of course, today he is retracting it all, uh, blaming the media, I guess, for not understanding sarcasm. I'm not sure it's the media that's that concerned uh, and more of the American people who don't understand his sarcasm. Blaine Haggard is with us, associate professor in the Department of Political Science, Brock University. And I should also mention that we always we always sort of get slammed for not giving the other side of the Trump uh, argument. And it's, it's, it's hard to get people in political science professors that will do that. But we do have a political pundit out of the U.S., Michael Diamond, who's uh, very cons- he's a conservative, but he's still concerned about uh, the direction Donald Trump is heading. We'll talk to him after we, we talk to Blaine. Blaine is with us now, associate professor, uh, Department of Political Science, Brock University, and on the air with us now. Hello, Blaine. Uh, your thanks again for joining us, of course. Your thoughts on this latest brouhaha. Don't you know when he's being sarcastic? Um... I don't know if he knows when he's being sarcastic. He seems, I, I, it, it, this seems to kind of fit a pattern, and I think we've talked about this before, where he just kind of throws things out, see what sticks, and see how it plays. So, um, you know, given the fact that he's got a relatively loose uh, relationship with the truth, it's something, you know, it's not a surprise that he could, you know, claim for like a day, a day and a half that, you know, he, that he's dead serious about it, and then say, you know, later on, oh, uh, yeah, I was just making a joke. Americans falling for it? Is it up to them to decode what he says? <laughs> um, I don't know if Americans are falling for it. it, it well, I mean, uh, he, he still has, uh, you know, a, a core of support, but, you know, his, uh, his polling numbers have, uh, have not been great uh, since, the, uh, since the convention, or since his convention, and uh, certainly uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, lead seems to have uh, stabilized or even gotten larger over him as he continues to say um, stranger and stranger things. Uh, he, he's also uh, revealing that he recognizes he may be in trouble. How does that change things? Um, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, he's, he's what, 70 years old. He's, he's someone who, who is, he is who he is. He, he lacks discipline. And I think also, more importantly for, you know, it's one thing to say that, you know, you recognize um, where you're failing, but running for president is a huge operation, and he just doesn't, he doesn't even have the infrastructure behind him to, uh, to help kind of, you know, put things like policies into place and to, you know, to put in, to do, get out the vote campaigns. He, he, he doesn't seem to have any of that. So that even if he recognizes that at a certain point, you know, we're a few months away from the election, there's going to be very little you can do. You know how hard it is to, you know, set up even like a meeting among five people. Imagine trying to do that on a presidential level. Are you surprised he hasn't reeled this in? Um, real, you mean... Uh, his sarcasm, his choice of words. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, it, I mean, you know, as he pointed out, I think, in, in an interview over the uh, past little while, that, uh, you know, this work, what he's doing right now worked very, very well for him. It got him the nomination for, uh, for presidents from the Republicans. Yeah. Um, and it's basically, it's his, it's his one tone. He, he doesn't seem to have the ability to modulate. Uh, do you think Republicans are almost to the point or to the point where they're just ready to fish or cut bait? In other words, just let this one tank so we can recover for the next one and perhaps save everything else? It's, uh, it, is, it is a possibility. I mean, at a certain point, um, you know, there, there's other people who are running for office in the United States who are Republicans. 
And they would always, you know, any politician would look at this and saying, well, okay, if my guy helps me, and usually, you know, a, a popular president or a possible presidential candidate, you want to be part of that. But at a certain point, they might say, wait a second, if he's dragging them down, I don't want to be on that ship with him. I'm going to basically say something like, um, sure, Hillary's going to win the presidency, but if you want a good, strong opposition, uh, vote for me as your Republican senator or, or representative. Getting back to the point of uh, Obama and Hillary founding ISIS and then the reporter saying, you mean he created the vacuum that allowed them to, uh, you know, to to facilitate their hate there. Um, you know, he said he, he said to that reporter that, no, no, they founded ISIS. That being said, being sarcastic or not, do you think it, the point that they did or, or, or many could have viewed it as they did create that vacuum, which allowed that to form? Will that message get across? Um, at this point, I, I really don't know. I think certainly um, it, it has gotten across to, uh, to people who are predisposed to believe it. I don't know if Trump is, is going to convince anyone who isn't already on board with him. And that's, that's one of the bigger problems that he's going to be facing, is that as he continues kind of down this path, you know, he's going to keep the... Uh, He's going to basically keep the people who are behind him behind him, but it's not going to convince anybody else. How does Hillary or should Hillary react to these, to, uh, to, well, just to specifically when, this? When, what's the saying? It says when your enemy's uh, busy self-destructing, just get out of the way and watch the show. Yeah. Is she smart enough to do that? I think so. I mean, she's been, you know, she, she, she's, a, a dis, she's not a great, you know, you know, retail politician, but she's certainly smart enough to recognize that, uh, you know, so long as she doesn't do anything stupid, people, I mean, we're having, we've talked about Donald Trump how many times over the past six months, um, and, you know, this isn't unusual. Everybody's talking about Donald Trump, and it's not in a complimentary way. So when they're focusing on, on Trump, they're not focusing on Hillary Clinton. Good point. Blaine Haggard has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Blaine, again, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, continuing with Donald Trump, of course, Donald Trump, uh, the last couple of days, has uh, been spouting that uh, Obama and Hillary are, uh, well, that they, they founded ISIS. And, of course, when questioned by a reporter saying, you mean they created the vacuum which allowed ISIS to form? No, no, no. Uh, they formed ISIS, or, or they founded ISIS. Uh, and then, of course, now he's uh, retracting that and saying that uh, the media doesn't understand sarcasm. I'm not sure whether it's the media or the Americans that don't understand sarcasm or, or, or whether he even understands it himself. Uh, we're always being, uh, you, you know, it's funny because people always say that I'm right wing, yet they say that I'm against Trump. Uh, I'm not against anything. I think this is a, a protest vote and this is Americans speaking up. Uh, whether it's the right decision, just like Brexit, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Michael Diamond is with us, conservative political pundit, and he is on the line with us now. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? Good, thanks, Ariel. Thank you. Uh, very fine. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We certainly do appreciate it. What are your thoughts on the statement that he made, and more importantly, his retraction when asked when asked to explain it? Well, I mean, his eventual retraction, because he had so many opportunities. And when I first heard the statement, I assumed, like Hugh Hewitt, who was one of the reporters you referenced, was that he meant that Barack Obama's actions in Iraq of pulling out prematurely created the vacuum for ISIS. And when Hugh Hewitt said that, and he completely said, no, you're wrong, they are founded it, they are the founders of ISIS, and Hillary Clinton's the co-founder, uh, it was just, you know, completely shocking to me. And now to claim that that was sort sarcasm, um, you know, and the media doesn't understand sarcasm. I think it's that the candidate doesn't understand sarcasm. Just another bizarre 
set of events from the Trump campaign. How are conservatives viewing this? What are you to do? You know, if you're in the United States and uh, there's few people that conservatives in the United States have disliked more than Hillary Clinton over the last uh, 25, 30 years. So they're, they're in between a rock and a hard place. Because, of course, you know, Donald Trump was someone who supported liberal politicians like Hillary Clinton for so many years. So your choices are voting for the nominee of your party or voting for Hillary Clinton or wasting your ballots. So rock in a hard place. And I think we're seeing uh, really three types of uh, traditional Republicans here. One who is going to stick with the party because a Republican is, uh, you know, how they will vote at the end of every day. Some who are looking for a third option. And then you're seeing an increasing number of Republicans who are either not going to vote or even expressing openness to uh, Hillary Clinton, like uh, Meg Whitman, who was one of Mitt Romney's uh, big fundraisers and uh, ran herself for governor of California as a Republican. How did this happen to the Republican Party? How, how did, what happened to conservatives, uh, conservatism, Michael? You know, I think the Republican Party over the last few cycles had been getting beaten up. The establishment wing, and you saw this with Eric Cantor and other longtime uh, congressmen and senators. But one of the being primaried and losing their renominations to insurgent uh, Tea Party members. But one of the sort of conventional wisdoms there was it would never happen at the presidential level because, you know, when... Pat Buchanan tried to tried to do it. They still went with Bob Dole because that was the consensus and uh, establishment choice. And uh, you know when uh, Rick Santorum tried to do it, Mitt Romney still won. So uh, common sense always prevails, and that was sort of just taken to be. Uh, a fact. And the, the fact of the matter is when Donald Trump got in, no one took him as seriously as they should have. Had uh, had Jeb Bush, for example, actually attacked Donald Trump instead of just taking it from him, had any of the other 15 candidates who did it, uh, who, who he, he did in, reacted in a better way, Donald Trump wouldn't be the nominee. It's quite amazing. Donald do you think Trump that would have been the case, though, Michael? I mean, do you think that the answer here would have been for Bush and all the rest just to stoop to his level and give it all back to him? Not stoop to his level, but actually talk about his record. If he, you yeah. know, why weren't we talking about Trump stakes and Trump University and, and Melania's immigration 15 months ago? Why weren't we talking about the David? Why, why wasn't any of the Republican candidates using that great David Letterman clip of him looking at the shirts and the ties and showing they're made in Bangladesh <laughs> and anywhere but the United States? It, it, it's amazing to me. Donald Trump, a political neophyte, had defeated 17, 16 Republican candidates who have combined run in 80 elections and served a total of 205 years in elected office in the United States. And and he, he did it without ever really being challenged on his record, his flip-flops, his policies. Do you think that's because the other candidates were just shell-shocked that he was doing and saying what he was? Exactly. And it was, you know, first no one thought he'd actually get in. Then he announced he was going to run. He said, oh, he'll never release his financials. Then, you know, he's not, you know, then he, he attacked John McCain. He attacked, attacked Megan Kelly. Oh, it's going to end at some point. We're just, you know, common sense will prevail. Then he lost in Iowa. And it's, okay, deep, deep sigh of relief. Hmm. Donald Trump, who's a winner, can't start winning once he lost. And then, you know, then he almost steamrolled the rest of the primaries. And Ted Cruz was going to be the great, great white hope for the Republican establishment, even though he's a man that they uh, have detested since he arrived in the Senate in 2012. So it was just every, every up was down, black was white, nothing, nothing was normal. No one took him seriously. They should have. But it may have still not been enough because the fact of the matter is, you know, Donald Trump may be a terrible messenger for his message, but the fact is people 
are right to be angry. People are yeah. right to want uh, yeah. to throw the bombs out. And um, he was the only one running from the outside. So you think uh, they waited too long to fight the fire, and now it's out of control. As you said, it has happened. So what now? You know, it's uh, it's shocking because I refuse to uh, say on this program today that Donald Trump cannot be elected president. I think he's disqualified himself from being a man who should hold the office, but he is so resilient that yeah. uh, had anybody else done anything that he did during the primary, attacking John McCain, attacking Megyn Kelly, um, flip-flopping on all the issues, they would have been done. But uh, he, he got away with it, so he may still, because the fact of the matter is Hillary Clinton is as deeply, if not mm-hmm. more deeply, a flawed candidate than Donald Trump. And we've seen in every other race Hillary Clinton's run for public office uh, for United States Senate twice and president one time before. So in her three previous elections that she's been on the ballot, her polling numbers have never improved throughout the campaign. She's always ended lower than she started. People have made up their mind about Hillary Clinton going back 30 years now. So she's going to have a hard time growing her support. Donald Trump is a more of a known unknown, so th- there's some opportunity for him to gain traction. So what we see today is not what we'll see in November. Uh, that being said, Michael, I mean, as you said, people started counting this guy out from day one. Oh, my goodness, when he started saying this, then that, then the wall, then blah, 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 and off he went. So how can you possibly discount him? How can, you, how can anyone possibly not take this seriously? You can't. I mean, Donald Trump has proven to... That he is galvanizing a huge pool of electors, 14 million votes for the Republican nomination, very competitive in states that Republicans have been shut out of for for many election cycles now. So you can't uh, you can't count them out. But just step back for a moment and imagine if Donald Trump was saying what Donald Trump is saying on policy, and that you know we need to make America great again, we need to protect our borders, we need to end these ridiculous trade deals. I don't think they were so ridiculous, but he and his supporters certainly do. And if he wasn't getting into the little stuff, wasn't saying that Hillary Clinton uh, and Barack Obama founded ISIS, didn't say that we need a Second Amendment solution to take care of hmm. potential judicial nominees in a Clinton administration, imagine how far out in the head in the polls he would be if he, if he had any sort of political discipline. Good point. Uh, how concerned is he that he's losing support? He even mentioned, even alluded to this. You know, I think for the first time, uh, and we saw it a bit after Iowa, when he lost in Iowa, I had, uh, had grabbed the popcorn and headed to my television because mm-hmm. I thought, what type of concession speech would Donald Trump give? This was going to be the best and most ridiculous thing ever. And he went out there and he was actually a bit humble and said, you know, we're going to work hard, we're going to try harder, we got to still win. And we saw that from him yesterday. He seemed a man almost slightly depressed, very mm. you know, concerned, and I think that might be what his campaign team actually needs him to be in that yeah. spot for a few days so they can get him into shape. And once again, the public views him as the real guy and he's willing, you know, look, he's honest, he's He's realized he's down and out at this point. And it's not, you know, not your typical politician who will go out there and admit that uh, things are not going 100% the way they want them to. So that is showing a bit more character than I would have expected a couple of weeks ago from Donald Trump. Which, again, just adds another question mark to the whole thing. Michael Diamond is with us, conservative political pundit. Michael, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.